Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have a special guest with us. It's Herschel Stevens. He is a relative of mine, and over the years, I've gotten to learn a lot about him. And very quickly, when in a conversation with him, once I decided to do the podcast, uh, it was very clear to me that he has a story worth sharing. and. Um, there are many that can gain from it. So welcome, Herschel. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to be here. Awesome. Anytime I get to sit in a room with you is like a blessing. I appreciate that. So um, first time I met Herschel was actually when we were in camp. I was his counselor at the time. What Herschel may not know and what people may not know is that I actually now I realize that I was going through a depressive little period and um i was pretty i was checked out for a lot of it but um still put a lot of effort into it and um try to be the best little counselor i can at the time and um the next time i really met him was when his sister married my brother and um and then his other sister married my brother other brother and um so we share a lot in and in conversations we were able to connect and these conversations were able to evolve into very meaningful conversations, which I would like to share with you today. So firstly, Herschel, again, thank you for being here. And I want me a little bit of a description of what it was like in the beginning, uh, your earliest memories of what life was like, the environment. Um, from what I can, from what I can recall, um, I don't, it's kind of weird and kind of feels like boasting to say prodigy child. I don't know. I was the oldest of three, well, later on, three three sisters. I'm the Bahar, only son, parents, Balchuva. They have a lot of hopes and dreams for you. Uh, I remember my mom told me that my grade one teacher told my mom that I was going to win the Chidon Harambam one day. Uh, I know that until... Uh, probably around eighth grade, I never got lower than a hundred on a test. Um, knew knew how to learn, was really good at it. Always was really good at focusing. Lego was like my favorite thing to play with at home, and I was always like able to sit and like read a book. I was reading like those big fat Yeager Weinstock books when I was like seven years old. Uh, it was always pretty quiet, pretty um, 
pretty clean. I was like made my bed before I left home at 645. Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of the memories I have as a child. Of a great home. Everything was great. I I probably was a little bit of a sheep, you know, just following the uh the system, but yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of recaps what I remember of my childhood. Awesome. Thank you. Um if we can just jump right in. If you can just give us a description of what it was like the first time you ever looked at life or noticed that something was wrong. Right. So I think this comes back to me saying that I felt maybe like I was a bit of a sheep. I think I still practicing the way, like optically the way it's supposed to. But I remember the first time I started questioning things. I was probably around seven, eight years old. Uh, a guy who was two years older than me, you know, also impressionable, told me uh, that when you shema and you don't cover your eyes, your eyeballs start burning. So I said, okay, I'm gonna gonna do it. I waited until I didn't want to just say shema, and then so I waited until it was like a minion. It was like a legit shema. I kept my eyes my eyes wide open, and nothing happened. I think. Once you realize that nothing happens, you just start questioning and you start pushing the envelope a little bit. So that that was when I can realize that's like the farthest back I can go and say that's when I started thinking on my own. Got it. And did that lead you anywhere that um, you think is worth sharing? I don't know if it led me anywhere, but I think looking back, I can see that. I was always, well, as soon as I had to start thinking for myself, I would have been thinking for myself the same way. No matter what would happen, I'd always be a thinker and always be uh, self-exploratory, if that makes sense. And uh, I'd always doubt things. That was my thing. Got it. And that was when you were seven, eight, correct? Mm-hmm. Is there anything significant significant you think may have shifted life? Uh, yeah. When I was 12 years old in camp, I uh, underwent some uh, sexual trauma uh, with a, a, a learning teacher. And... Um, it's weird because you kind of get swept up in what happened. But for me, the biggest difference was coming back from camp. Uh, I went into eighth grade. And it was interesting. We had the same teacher for grade seven and grade eight. And he used to say, he was like, Herschel, you're like a different kid. Like, you went away for the summer and I'm having you again the second year. And you're like literally a different kid. He would say that like, he would joke. He's like, you're like bipolar. Um, yeah. Cause one week I would be able to sit and learn. And then the next week I couldn't sit still. I couldn't focus on anything. And I don't, I didn't realize at the time what was going on. Probably took a couple of years until I realized that I can look back at that and say that was a turning point. But, um, what did you think was going on at the time? Uh, probably 
a lot of guilt, a lot of anger. I know anger is a secondary emotion. It's not really what you're feeling. That's your reaction to what you're feeling. Um, I know I was acting very angry, like random blowing up at people. Um, I felt very out of control over myself and my surroundings. I had a very deep-seated uh, hatred for any figure of authority. I uh, didn't even know where that came from. You know, like why all of a sudden I was always a teacher's pet as a kid. And now all of a sudden I'm like, I just want to chop their all, all their heads off. Um, and I'm, it's hard to put a finger on guilt, but I'm pretty sure there was a lot of guilt involved. Right. So that sounds like, and I appreciate you sharing a lot of the emotions. I was wondering if you can connect with what was like some sort of like a narrative that you had going on in your mind. Like what were the words that you would tell yourself in your brain during that period. And I ask that because I want, I'm hoping that somebody listening to it will be like, oh my gosh, I should tell myself that same thing. So I think that can be important. So the tricky part is that if I look back at that time, I don't remember any of my self-talk. Hmm. It's, it was just a whirlwind of emotion Maybe it's like also going through puberty and stuff like that. You have a lot of emotions, a lot of hormones, a lot of stuff going on. But I don't remember beating myself up in my brain. It was just lashing out and it was all just being reactive. I was maybe in some points of like retrospect, I would say, I would look in the mirror and say like, what are you doing? This is not who you are. This is not how you how you react to things this is not how you behave but i like that's it i don't know i didn't wouldn't, i wouldn't have any talk about guilt i never told your told myself you're a bad person it was all just reactionary i didn't think of anything i didn't look for an excuse i just was okay and with those all, all those emotions, and I, I can imagine, and just tell me if I'm mistaken, that it's become overwhelming. Like this polarized idea of the way I should be and the way I am. What did you do with that? Like, how did you deal with that? Um, yeah, that was probably, to be honest, the hardest part of the whole situation was trying to wrap my head around the way I am, the way I feel like I'm supposed to be, people's expectations of me. You know, my parents always had, you know, big dreams. My teachers always said good things. And all of a sudden I'm literally throwing it back in their face and saying, this is not what I want. Um, so of course it caused, it caused a lot of, you know, dissonance inside me, but um, I don't like, I don't know how I handled it. I probably handled it really badly. I remember years later in therapy trying to find out if what didn't happen to me, if if what, what happened to me was the reason why I ended up the way I am or whether it would have happened anyway. And I think I came to the conclusion that I would have been, you know, the questioner and the doubter that I am regardless of whether I have the trauma or not. 
So that 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 helps a lot with the guilt or the what could have been questions, which to me are the most damaging. Got it. And can you remember what was the first action you took from that period on? Like what was the first thing you ever did that was some sort of form of I have this conflict. I have to do something about it. It's gotten so bad. I have to do something about it. Whether, you know, no matter what it is, I just wanted to know if you can share what you did. Uh, For me, it was totally external. It wasn't a decision that I made to kind of talk about things and try to figure anything out because I was just reacting. Uh, I had a a friend in the community who uh, saw me crossing the street and he said the look on my face looked like I wanted to kill whoever stopped at the stop sign. I was just like stared him down while I crossed the street for like no reason. And he, he wanted to understand like, how does a kid get this angry at someone he doesn't know? Um, he ended up speaking to my parents and my parents said, you know, if you can get him to talk about what's going on, please. Um, he would pull me out of sheer Aleph Masifta was in Shirala. If he would pull me out of class. So he would come, he was just a regular guy in the community coming yeah. to your school saying, hey, I would like to sit down and speak with Herschel. Uh, I think my parents spoke to, you know, the Rosh Hashiva and they arranged that, you know, once a week he can come take me out of, take me out of class. And for me, it was a, an hour I didn't have to spend in Yeshiva. So I was going to take it. I think we spent a good couple months just sitting me in the dri- in the passenger seat, him in the driver's seat, just talking about everything until he was able to gain my trust um can you give us a little glimpse into that conversation with him like what were the things he talked about what was his reaction a lot of the things we talked about was usually um the guilt surrounding growing up from or or super chassidish and then having physiological needs um uh, just that that kind of thing that I feel like causes a lot of guilt, especially if you're growing up as a 14-year-old kid, you're not allowed to have any contact with anyone. Uh, you're not allowed to learn about what's going on with your body while it's happening and uh, just tack on the trauma to that. And it just equals a lot of confusion. I think everyone in my class was probably confused at some point. Um, and I guess I was lucky because those guys, my classmates, didn't have a chance to talk to someone who was as open as as he was. But being able to talk about it and destigmatize how you're being able to talk about how you feel was a very big opening to me getting better. Um we talked about everything in that car and i felt safe i don't i felt like i was able to talk about anything without being judged or thrown out of yeshiva or anything like that can you share and if you can remember what were the key things that he did to earn your trust to allow this conversation to happen um i remember in the beginning of our conversations it was very shocking to hear the words he used like um, what like penis 
or sexual attraction. Those all, all those kind of words are taboo. You don't talk about them. You don't read them. You've never seen them written. Um, so for me, it was like, uh, it was like ripping off a bandaid somewhere and it was like, oh, you know, it took a, it took a while to get used to being able to talk about it. But once it started that you can talk about these things and you're not a bad person for even thinking about it, um, it really let the flow to recovery start. Amazing. And can you talk about anything that, that converse, those conversations led to? Um, eventually, he realized that I was going through something and I was, at that point, I was still too uncomfortable to tell him uh, that I was, I was molested. Um, he boiled it down for me one day. I think he was getting upset. He was like, okay, I earned your trust. Let's let's do this. Let's tackle it head on. Uh, but he, he gave me three options. He's like, you're feeling guilty about three things. A, you own a gun and you don't know what to do with yourself or it. B, you're stealing from pushkas and you can't live with that guilt. Or three, someone touched you. And um, I think he kind of knew which which option it was, but I still didn't tell him. Uh, it was only a couple weeks later. It was uh, almost Motsi Shabbos. We were in a side room in the shul and it was dark, so I couldn't see him. And I just said in Hebrew, Zaya Madrich Sheli, he was my counselor. And, um, yeah, and it didn't shock him, but for me it was like that, moment felt like ripping off a band-aid or like i don't know a cast that's still on a still broken arm um and he said do you want to tell your parents i said no you can tell them and uh he had my permission he went took my parents to uh the nearest starbucks that night it was mozi shabbos i went back to yeshiva for night seder pishing my pants not just you know what were your fears I don't know. It's just super vulnerable. I didn't know how my parents would take it. Because uh, in my life, my parents, everything. Um, would my parents hold me accountable at any point? Would they be so upset that they reacted really negatively? And then I would just be more traumatized from seeing them traumatized. Like I, I was very nervous. I remember... I don't even know what kind of Seder they do Motsi Shabbos anymore, but I was just sitting there probably trembling the whole time. Um, but my parents came to Yeshiva. Uh, they took me to uh, the local pizza store that was open Motsi Shabbos late, bought me an ice cream. I sat in the back of the car with my head hiding. And they sat there and they faced, they knew I was too uncomfortable for them to look at me. There was no, it was a very like informal gathering, but probably the most important conversation I ever had. Uh, my parents, they said, um, we want you to know that we're, we're here. What happened to you is not your fault. And we're going to take care of you no matter what. And 
nothing will change. Our love for you is still the same. And it's good you told us because now we can understand and now we can start correcting whatever is going on. And I mean, looking back now, I probably appreciate that a lot more than I did then. I'm still probably scared, but that saved my life right there. Can we say that those were probably the most important words anybody's ever told you? A hundred percent. Knowing that you are still accepted, no matter how much you're not living to, up to their expectations, uh, as much as rebellious as you're being, and as difficult as you are, that you're still loved and you still have their unconditional support, is everything to any kid, especially a kid who is dealing with a lot of guilt about who they are. That's so powerful. I got lucky. You are very fortunate. Is there, um, I'm just going to throw this question right in here. You're talking about very, very, the most extreme personal subjects right now. And I want to know what has motivated you and made you willing to share this here. I don't think I would have been able to have this conversation or even be in this room if I didn't do the amount of work that I did, the therapy, the talking about it. Eventually, you talk about it so much. I wouldn't say that you're desensitized. I wouldn't say that it doesn't have control. But I would say that the more I talk about it, the easier it gets. And the more I talk about it, the more I own it. So, so, so if you you can talk about it to a therapist, why would you be willing? I know this is a bit of a, like a, a heavy question, but like, yeah, why would you be willing to do this? Because we're going to publicize this. If this can go out and help one person, even for thirty seconds, make them feel better, it's worth it. I'm not. It's, it's hard to look back at what happened to me and say that there was good that came out of it because nothing good came out of it. But the question is what I do about it and letting it own me and letting it take control over how I feel. I'm not going to let that happen. And if there's anyone who can be helped, who will speak, who will feel a little less guilty, who will reach out for the support that they need, I know how much it can save a life. So I guess that gives us a good glimpse into how painful that experience can be. Because if it's worth it for you to put yourself out there and risk reputation or whatever it is that we would consider a risk, it's worth it for you just to take away 30 seconds of somebody's pain in that, in that position. I am a, Dr. Seuss says it best. He says, mine don't matter and those who matter don't mind. If someone looks at me differently after this, I don't want them, I don't care to look back anyway. And if the people who care about me will will appreciate this, so. Yeah, and it. I appreciate that, thank you. Okay, so just over to the next chapter, from that conversation with your parents, I just wanted to know 
if you can share like what are the different things that you have tried and that you feel like was working what did not work and ultimately today how do you maintain healthy living um as soon as i spoke up the search for a therapist begins i probably saw like a handful of therapists mostly men mostly from people some lubavitchers um but it's chemistry and it's got to work everyone works differently uh took me a while to finally find someone that i trusted um we went i used to go every week sometimes twice a week as needed you know you take your dose as needed um it really came to a head at when i was 16 in yeshiva i was still in yeshiva in Muncie and uh i don't think it was really taken very seriously until when i was 16 i i guess i felt very rejected what happened was is that a big chunk of our class all applied to go to LA for Zal uh we're sure again mom safta and it was around lagbomer time and 12 kids applied 11 got in i was the one who didn't and uh this was my khabra this was like my crew that i you know made friends with over the past year and we did everything together and they're all going to la and i asked my rosh shiva why i wasn't going and he said you still have to prove it so i remember i went to the uh local i don't know pharmacy bought like two bottles of uh Advil liquid gels extra strength i was like 100 pounds then <laughs> and uh that was it i was going to drink them with a bottle of uh smirnoff cuz there were plenty of those lying around and that would be it um i was walking to the dorm my roshishiva sami and he pulled me over cuz i i'm like really bad at hiding how i feel So he pulled me aside and he said, "What's going on?" I said, "Uh, I don't know, depressed." I uh, checked my pocket and found like <laughs> two bulging two bulging pockets. So what's in your pockets? I took them out and that was enough for him. Uh, he took me to the hospital and I went went into a a psych ward in uh what was it Rockland County? It's not a fun place. It was a very big wake-up call for everyone. And uh that's really when it came to a head. Started seeing a psychiatrist, started seeing a therapist even in Muncie because like when you're in yeshiva, it's hard to find a therapist everywhere you go. But that's when like taking care of it really started in earnest. What else were you talking about? what was your intention i know it may seem obvious but what were you trying to accomplish um i probably would have chickened out after like seven pills i don't know because i wasn't going to tell anyone i wasn't on my way to tell someone i was on my way to do it but i didn't i didn't want to die i just didn't want to be in pain 
I didn't want to live with the way I felt about myself. What was that? Worthless. And that was like a reaction towards not being accepted in everybody else's. I think it was a reaction to, yeah, the being the only person rejected really spoke to me being like Some me mess. as a person. Mm. The truth is, is that I was dealing with the trauma from what happened before. So I'm already, I'm already volatile from, from what happened there, which made me volatile enough for him to say, you're not going to LA right away. So like, I kind of, it kind of all stems back to that turning point. Um, but yeah, I, I ha always had a really hard time with rejection. I'm a very strong inward perfectionist. Always want every, myself to be perfect. Uh, it's one of the worst things that can happen to a person is to be a perfectionist. Right. And while we're at, while we're at it and you brought that up, what do you think will happen as a result of being perfect? Like, what are you really seeking? Validation. That. Self-worth. And the validation, I don't think the validation comes from, I'm not looking for external validation at this point. I'm constantly looking for internal validation, uh, which would come from me being able to pat myself on the back and say, you did a good job. But when you're a perfectionist, you never do that. You never give yourself a pat on the back. Everyone else does, but you can't. Do you have any idea what type of therapy you did? Like what clinically, uh, probably a lot of, um, a lot of CBT. I think, I think it started off as CBT. Um, mostly just sitting there talking. Just, I don't know what the official term for it is, but I would sit, talk about my thoughts. I'd get it parroted back to me. And then, uh, not parroted, more like mirrored. No, what was it called? The proper way to uh, bounce, bounce what they said back to you. Active listening. No, but when you when you talk back to them, you say what they said. Paraphrase. But it is paraphrasing. But in therapy, it's called like mirroring or something, as opposed to parroting, which parroting is you're just saying the same exact words. I'm upset. You're upset. <laughs> like okay, bud. Um, excuse my laughing. That was funny. <laughs> after what happened at, what was the end of that story after the psych ward uh, just to show uh, shout out to my dad just to show how much my parents played a role in me still being here my father had planned a, a ski trip that weekend he was he had just landed in Calgary or Edmonton or something. They were going to drive to Banff. He uh, was on a plane when I was admitted. And uh, he got a call when he landed from my mom saying that, you know, Herschel's in the hospital in Muncie. 
and uh, he was halfway to Banff in the in his rental. He turned around, got on the next flight back to Toronto, and then got on a got into his car and drove down to Muncie so that he didn't have to be locked up for more than two days. Um, what was that a statement for you? What statement was that for you? That I had their undivided support. So based on that experience, I wanted to know if you're able to, at this point, just make a statement to any parent that may be listening to this. To any parent that may be listening, um, I know seeing your kid hurt is probably the hardest thing to endure as a parent. I I don't I mean I I don't know because I'm not a father, but I can imagine it's very painful. And it's very confusing because there's always more to than there's more to the trauma that that goes on than just dealing with the trauma there's there's the after effects and there's the years and but for parents showing your kid that they'll never lose you and that you're always going to love them no matter what is probably the most important thing that a kid can feel especially when they're so vulnerable and if a parent is having a hard time, there's nothing wrong with a parent also getting help, speaking to someone, a professional or, or anyone to learn how they can also help the situation. Sometimes a victim doesn't know what they need. And part of their therapy is learning how to communicate to their support system about what they need. Um, and the support system also needs to learn how to listen to what they need and how to deliver the message that they're never going to think of them as less because of what happened to them. Amazing. Thank you. I know that part of your story is rehab. Big part. <laughs> Can we jump right in that? Sure. What uh, led up to that, and uh, what was that experience like? Um, I, I guess, I think after a couple times, I think it was a couple times I tried to uh, kill myself in, in quick succession that they realized that probably sending me away for very intensive, immersive therapy was, was necessary. I went down to Houston to the Menninger Clinic for two months, followed by a three-month step-down program. Um, I was there. It's like an all-inclusive cage. Nothing sharp in the entire building. Nothing, nothing you can sabotage yourself or anything you're doing with. Very structured and just completely emotionally naked for two months with the people around you. With, I mean, with the staff, it's a very real experience. And there's, like, you you have nothing else to do but face your issues and think about it. And it's rough. It's very hard to to just always be conscious of your issues. 
for two months straight. But after that, and then transitioning back into normal life and being around people who hide things and don't talk real talk all the time is was a very good thing for me. I know a lot of people who go to rehab and then they don't necessarily have the money or the resources or the time to go to a transition place. And then they come into the world and they don't really know how to react. And everyone seems fake to them. I think I think the transition is almost just as important as the rehab because mm. you got to get back to normal life eventually. And those two months where I was in Menninger, I was not having a normal life. Even the three months wasn't a normal life, but just learning how to just basic life skills, all these things that you're, you're basically rebuilding yourself. And that I think therapy, if needed, is such an amazing tool, uh, like a structured environment, that kind of stuff. Okay. And um, what do you do today that helps you be many steps away from getting back to where you were before you went to rehab or those other times? There are days where I feel very far removed. There are days where I feel like it just happened. There are days where I feel like I'm first day out of rehab. Um, every day is different. I think just time, the more I talk about it, the more I take ownership of it, I gain control and I stop using it as a crutch to excuse myself from living life. I, I mean, things happen in our lives all the time, but I think I'm done with looking back at what happened when I was 12 and saying, I'm going to react poorly now because of what happened then. What do you do today when you notice that, oh, you know, I'm acting poorly for what happened then? What do you do then? I reach out to my support system. I... I've realized over the years that when people say you need to help yourself, that it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of people picture that going into your room and meditating and getting your stuff together. But I don't think, I mean, it's a big part in helping yourself, but I think being able to reach out to your support system or at least making a support system and being able to communicate with them exactly what you need has helped me tremendously to be able to call a friend and say, I can't be alone right now. Let's go see a movie. Even like, let's, let's go, uh, I don't know, have a beer somewhere. But it's usually simple things that you need that the friends that care about you are more than willing to give. And that's, that for me is everything being able to, Reach out to others is you helping yourself. That's awesome. What's your message for anybody who notices signs of the behavior that you had? For example, the, oh my gosh, you, you, you went away for the summer and you changed. Or um, 
somebody who notices, oh, this 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 kid has a really big frown on their face, or like there's something wrong here. Um, or the or the adult who didn't have any of the experiences that you had in regards to the recovery, but had had the trauma, and they're still sitting there today with it raw, and they're dealing with the consequences. So there's different different parts of your story where I believe that if people can hear from you who has gone through it and has been able to find a healthy support system, a message for these people. Get one. Get a healthy support system because there, there always is one. How do you begin? Tell the people that love you first or tell someone that you trust to tell the people that love you like I did with my parents. Um, and again, you have like, it's going to happen that when you reach out to people for support, that some of them are not going to be available. And that's okay. Because you can't expect people to be able to give you what you need because you need it from them. And if they can't give it to you, then you don't want whatever they have to sell anyway. Um, but start start with an inner circle. Grow from there. The more you talk about it, the easier it gets. Can I challenge that for a second? Sure. I'm just, I'm putting, I'm trying to put my shoes into a listener who's thinking something like, I actually feel like nobody loves me and I don't trust anybody. I'm in such a bad state and I just don't feel like there's anybody in my life that I can open up to. Then call me. How can people reach you? Facebook. Herschel Stevens, Instagram, Herschel underscore Stevens, I think. If it's not, I'll change it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, first of all, I, I would challenge that nobody loves any, like, I don't think there's one person on this earth that's unloved by everyone. Um, we're all so blessed. It's hard to see it, but we are. And... If you are really in a place where you don't feel like you can talk to anyone that you trust, pay someone just at least once. Go see someone, a, a professional. Tell them what's going on and maybe build a plan, a recovery plan, something. But nothing's going to get better if you don't get the ball rolling. And I think opening up is the first step. Finding your support system is the second, and they'll help you through the rest of the way. What can we do as a community to allow that to happen? Talk about it more. More it's talked about. The less people feel ashamed to be a part of it. But that's the thing. People talk about it and then there's like polarizing opinions. P victims can't hear the polarizing opinions. If you look on comments on Facebook and you see, he didn't do it, he did it, he didn't do it. Those comments of he didn't do it, or it couldn't be, he was such a nice man. Those are the most hurtful for a victim. And um, we just need to give undying support for 
anyone who's going through pain. And that's the only way that people will feel comfortable enough to talk about it and get better. I know that part of your story um, included organizations or, or people who were able to be supportive for you. I know that, of course, you had your parents and you had the rabbi and you had the neighbor. You had the Rosh Hashiva. You had all these different people along your path. Are there any others that you can share? I thank them. Uh, yeah, I'd give a huge shout out to uh, Mayor Seawald at Jewish Community Watch. Uh, when I started talking to him, he wasn't even going by his name. Still a secret about who was running the situation. But he went by the name Pinchas, the one who took charge and stabbed the wrong, pe the, the bad people. So, Mayor, if you hear this, keep doing what you do because you're saving lives on the daily. Uh, he really helped me with coming forward and pressing charges, testifying, um, unconditional support. What was the biggest part of what he did that made, that um, allowed healing to happen for you? He called me brother. That was probably the biggest thing. It's, it's kind of weird and out there and it wasn't, for me personally, I mean, he helped my parents a lot by talking to them. He knew the, you know, an organization in the DA's office here in Brooklyn and stuff like that. But for me, it was when every time I spoke to him, he would just say, what's going on, brother? That was, it was like, I wasn't alone. There was a team of people that were on my side and like, like a brother, they're family and they don't, they don't give up on you. So that's so powerful. Yeah. Herschel, thank you so much. What you did today and shared with us is tremendous. And us as a community, myself, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.